2 Kings chapter 16. We return to our study through this book that originally, when it's written, it's one book, one author, First and Second Kings. They, you know, the, the translators divided it for uh, uh, the purposes of, of our ease of finding things a little bit better. And the whole purpose of the, the author is to, to speak of covenants and character, talk about the covenant that God made with his people, the covenant his people made with him, how God kept his covenant, how his people didn't keep their side of the covenant, how God's character was unwavering and it didn't change, but how his people, sometimes they had good character, sometimes they had not so good character. And so it leaves us with, with two primary concepts and ideas is that God is faithful. God keeps his word. We have a choice to make how we will be, whether we'll be like the king we're going to study tonight or like some of the other godly leaders that led uh, Judah during their history. Well, at this point in time in 2 Kings 16, Judah's last three kings, Amaziah, Uzziah, and Jotham, they were not idolaters. The Bible says they did that which is right in the eyes of the Lord, but they did not love the Lord like David did either. And so while they brought great economic prosperity to the nation, Judah was just slowly, bit by bit, rotting from the inside spiritually. And, and so to get Judah's attention, God begins to allow Syria and Israel to put pressure on them. But uh, the sad thing is, is that as this pressure starts to come, the people don't cry out to the Lord in repentance. And when a people don't recognize that they have left their first love, when an individual doesn't recognize that, that rottenness eventually leads to wickedness. And so Judah's next king is the one who takes that next step from rottenness into wickedness. And he turns to the king of Assyria and other gods for rescue instead of the Lord. So chapter 16, we begin in verse one. It says, in the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. 20 years old was Ahaz when he began to reign. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord his God, like David his father. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, Yea, and made his son to pass through the fire according to the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. So we see that the writer's evaluation of Ahaz is not good. This is not a good king we're going to be studying tonight. It starts off by giving us the setting in the 17th year of Pekah, the king of Israel, the king in the north. We go back to three years before Hoshea assassinates this guy and takes the throne of Israel. Now, I know it's been a few weeks, but just to refresh your mind, when Pekah was king of Israel, he was very anti-Assyria. Assyria, it can be very confusing at times, it's Syria and Assyria. They're two different nations. Uh, like, for example, think of it this way. Assyria is like northern Iraq. Syria is modern-day Syria. So think of that as, as the differences. So what we have here is we have Assyria is becoming very powerful and exerting pressure in the Middle East, seeking to expand their kingdom. And some of these nations around the area where Israel is, is they are, they are resisting that, that pressure. And so Pekah, the king of, of Israel, he is very anti-Assyria, and he forms an alliance with Rezin, the king of Syria, and the two of them begin to put pressure on Judah. You need to join our alliance against Assyria. But Judah's previous king, before Ahaz takes over, his dad, Jotham, he was not, not uh, anti-Assyria. He wanted nothing to do with an alliance with Israel, let alone Syria, which was Israel's enemy. And so Israel and Syria, we're going to see, they respond with an invasion. And it's into that type of uh, climate that Ahaz becomes Judah's next king at the age of 20. It says he was 20 years old, verse 2, when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. But before it gets into how he handled this, you know, uh, political crisis, this invasion, it talks about the most important thing, which is his spiritual character. It says here that he did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord his God, like David his father did. 
The phrase, that which is right, we've been seeing it all throughout the, the Kings, but it means that which is straight, something that's not crooked. When something's right, it means it's moving in a straight direction. It's not crooked and off the path. Well, this is probably a good time to ask the question, well, what is the straight path in God's eyes? Like, what, what is the path that is straight and isn't crooked going off the road that he has for our lives? Well, we can find the answer to that question actually by looking to see what a prophet who lived during Ahaz's reign, what he said. So turn to Micah chapter 6 with me. Micah chapter 6. Micah is one of the minor prophets. Minor not because he's less important, but minor because those books are smaller. You know, you've got your 50 plus chapters of Jeremiah. That's the only reason he's called a major prophet. But you've got Micah's little book here. And Micah is a prophet of God called to minister to the nation of Israel, nation of, of Israel and Judah during this time period when Ahaz is the king. And we see in Micah chapter 6, the Lord speaking through the prophet Micah says this, hear you now what the Lord says, arise, Plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. In other words, the Lord addresses his people and he says, I want to hear your argument. I want to understand why. Make your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. And listen, O you mountains. The Lord's controversy. I've got, I've got a point I want to make too. The Lord's controversy and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with his people and he will plead with Israel. He says, I want to hear your case, and then I'm going to present my case. So God, he says to them, oh, my people, verse 3, what have I done unto you? What, what have I done that's so horrible that you would treat me this way? You'd reject me, that you would, you would not trust me. And wherein have I wearied you? Testify against me. He goes, how have I put burdens on you that are too hard to carry? How have I been a nuisance to you? How have I not, not been anything but good to you? For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I redeemed you out of the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, how he consulted and what Balaam, the son of Beer, answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that you might know the righteousness of the Lord. So Micah, he gives him a little history lesson. He, he says, you know, the Lord says, what have I done wrong? Why don't you trust me? Why have you turned against me? Why have you turned to other gods who don't exist and don't care about you? What have I done wrong? And Micah gives him a history lesson. He reminds him of God brought them out of Egypt and how even as they were coming through the wilderness and other nations were against them, that the Lord stood by their side and he always has. Israel has no answer. Judah has no answer. And so Micah answers for them in verse six. How do I fix this, Lord? What is it that you want from me? Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Like, how do I fix this? What do you really want from me, God? I mean, clearly you've got a case against me and I've got no argument. So what is it that you want from me? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Is that the answer? Does God just want to bleed me dry? It's never enough, God. Verse 80 says, no, he has showed thee, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? The Lord's voice cries unto the city and the man of wisdom shall see your name. He will know God's character and know that God's not asking for a lot. Hear ye the rod and who has appointed it. Sometimes you go to church and you even get the impression that God's asking for everything. He wants all your money, he wants all your stuff, wants all your time. God doesn't need any of those things. He's not asking for all your money, all your stuff, or all your time. He's just asking for some simple things. He wants us to do the right thing, to do justly. He wants us to be kind to others, to love mercy. And he wants us to have a humble relationship with him. 
That's all he's after. You know, there came a point in Jeremiah's time of ministry, and these guys kept saying, oh, I've got a burden from the Lord. I've got a burden from the Lord. And the Lord told Jeremiah, he says, tell him to outlaw that saying. I don't want to say the burden of the Lord because I don't put burdens on people. As I was in New York at the conference there, a guy gave a message on, in the book of Luke where he talks about the unprofitable servant. He said, talking about a servant, he goes out, he you know, works for a guy in the field and you know, when he comes in, his master doesn't, would never say to him, he says, you think his master's gonna say to him, hey, uh, why don't you take a break, you know? Why don't you t- take a break and I'll go, I'll go get you some food, put your feet up, I'll take care of you. You've been working hard all day. He says, no. He said, when he comes in, the master's gonna say to him, he said, cook me my dinner, take care of me, and then you can go eat. And then do you think at some point in time afterwards, he's gonna go, you're just going above and beyond. But he goes, no, because you're just doing what you were told to do, what you're being paid to do. You're just an unprofitable servant. There are realities that sometimes we, we, don't, we don't want to think that way. We think, well, that's really harsh of God. No, because he's a good master. We have not put God in our debt somehow by how we behave or how we live. And he's not asking us to to, to put these burdens on our life. He loves us. He said, I just want you to do what's right. I want you to love people. I want you to walk humbly with me. That's what he's after. That's the right path that he wanted these kings to be on. He wants us to be on. Does that describe your life? Do you trust the Lord? Do you walk humbly with him? Just spend time with him? I think sometimes, I, you know, it's always a challenge. Not always, but sometimes it's a challenge to sit down with your Bible and spend some time with the Lord because the flesh doesn't want to do it, right? And I do it and I hang out with the Lord. I'm just spending time with him, talking to him and letting him talk to me as I'm reading his, you know, the word. And I'm just like, why do I fight this? wonderful. I was reading, I don't know if it was yesterday or today, but in Song of Solomon, the bride says, I, I'm the rose of Sharon, oh, the, the lily of the valleys, and the, as a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. She's saying that about, about her, her man, the king. She says, the apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight. His fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. I've never regretted sitting down with Jesus and hanging out with him. His banner over you is love. He sets a banquet before he wants to hang out with you. Do you do that? Do you obey him? Do you do the right things? Are you kind to others? Because if that's not the case, then you need to get back on the straight path. <laughs> you get back on the right path because that's where it lies. If you are on the right path, then stay there. Don't ever go on the crooked path. But Ahaz, unfortunately, walks far off the straight and narrow path because just like the kings of Israel, he ignores God's commands, he uses others, and he worships false gods. Verse 3 of 2 Kings 16, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, yea, and then it adds to this, he made his son to pass through the fire according to the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel. Child sacrifice is unfortunately a common part of ancient religion, whether you're looking at the Middle East or you're looking at the ancient Americas. If you haven't figured it out yet, the enemy of our souls, Satan, is vile. He hates life, he hates children, and he seeks to destroy them as soon as possible. When we read about the things that Hamas did, slaughtering children in Israel, this is just Satan's modus operandus. It is how he operates. He does not care. He wants to destroy as soon as possible. Jesus said he is a murderer. If you have kids, 
and you just give them free reign with your internet or devices, I'm just being blunt with you right now. You have not come to an agreement with what Jesus says about who our enemy is. Because he wants to kill your kids. And there he was not, he's not gonna play nice and he's not gonna play fair. He doesn't care. He is vile. And when I see adults today celebrating the mutilation of our children or the killing of our children, it shows that we have not evolved one bit as a people. We haven't learned a thing. Children were back then in the Middle East sacrificed to Baal and the other Canaanite gods. But this specific phrase, passing your child through the fire, that's a ritual to the god, Canaanite god known as Molech. Molech was an idol made of metal. He would have extended hands like this and usually an opening in his belly. Uh, the idol would be heated up and the child would be burned either on the hands or placed in the belly to be consumed as an offering. And the writer reminds us here that this hideous form of worship is one of the reasons God judged the Canaanites. I don't think that God feels any different about it now. We can and should speak of the horrors committed by Hamas. But the truth of the matter is we're doing the same things, similar things here to our children in our own soil. We may not be shooting them or cutting off their heads, but we are pulling them apart in the womb and mutilating them via gender reassignment surgeries. I assure you, the same justifications that we make are the ones who support Hamas are making as well. There are reasons. There are no reasons for God. Jesus has really frank words to say about those who would lead, harm a little one. And he says, it'd be better for you to put a millstone around your neck and throw yourself into the sea. The idea is that if you have already done something like that, it would be better, better for you to just end it right now and add up even more judgment for taking advantage of someone who is vulnerable and cannot defend themselves. I, I always think to myself when we come to passages like this in scripture, I'm like, well, I don't really need to address this stuff. I mean, that's not something we're involved in here. And unfortunately though, all too often you, you hear about in the church where there's child abuse or sexual molestation going on. If you are messing around with one of these little ones, then you need, you need to turn yourself in right now. You need to repent. You need to turn yourself in. You need to stop bringing harm to the life of a little one. There is no other recourse for you. we think of the scriptures and we see how Jesus, even a simple thing where the disciples, you know, they, they see that Jesus is busy. They see that he's tired and, and they're keeping the children from coming to him. And what does Jesus say? Don't you stop those little ones from coming to me. There's something, there's so much compassion. There's so much love in the heart of God for life. There's such a desire in his heart that children would know his love, that they would know and understand. It's one of the reasons that, you know, if you've been coming here for any period of time, you've heard the guys who come up here and pray and pray for our children's ministry, pray for our kids' ministry, you know, high school ministry, pray that our kids would know that God loves them. There's a reason for that. Because we have stressed the importance that we want our kids to comprehend that. My kids are, are, are older now where I don't, I don't go in at night and pray with them every night. You know? But when they were little, I would go in, I would pray with them and I would always tell them, I'd say, Jesus loves you so much and nothing you ever do will ever change that. Because I want it to stick in their head so strongly that it can never, nothing they see in life would ever take it out of their head. Jesus 
has great compassion, great love for those who are disadvantaged, who are naive, who are young, the elderly. We should be honoring those age groups and those people groups who are vulnerable, not exploiting them or taking advantage of them or celebrating their destruction. Ahaz puts his own son into the fire to somehow secure Molech's blessing upon the nation, upon his reign. And he doesn't stop there. He also encourages the people to worship however they want. Verse 4, he sacrificed and he burnt incense in the high places on the hills and every green tree. Uh, we read the other kings and it mentions as a critique, but they didn't tear down the high places, right? And for the high places, these are not pagan worship sites. These are worship centers to the Lord, but not done the way that the Lord prescribed. And, and it was a constant critique that the kings didn't want to go that extra step and take away people's worship centers. It'd be like, you need to come to the temple. You need to come to worship there as the Lord prescribed. They would throw a fit. We don't want to do that. Let's keep everybody happy. So they didn't do it. But they didn't go and worship at them. Well, this guy's like, which church are we going to today? You know, which worship center are we going to today? You know, he's like taking a tour of the high places around Judah. And, and the idea is he's encouraging God's people to worship incorrectly. Look, it's okay. I'm doing it. You can do it as well. <laughs> people, I often hear people say that atheism is like the worst thing for a society. What's interesting is the Bible actually dismisses the atheist. You know, it, it basically says he's a proud fool who's just going to waste his life, just live for nothing. It doesn't decry the atheist as the great danger to society. And I, in my short life of 50 years observing, I'm coming to an agreement with that. I think the worst thing a society can encounter is a religious leader who does not know the Lord someone who professes to be religious or an influential person who professes to be religious, but they don't know the Lord because that person then wants to use their life and their influence to lead others in the wrong direction. God commanded his people to worship, to gather the temple to worship him, but Ahaz's actions proclaim God's word's not important. Worship the Lord how you want, just like I'm doing. Now, you think to yourself, remember the context. Syria and Israel are invading Judah. This is your response? Let's get the God Molech on our side. Let's just make worship as free as possible. Yep, and it does nothing to stop the danger. Look at verse five. It says, then Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to war. And they besieged Ahaz, but they could not overcome him. This is, echoes the words that are in Isaiah chapter uh, 7 uh, of the situation. It says they came up. Now, I do want to point something out that I think is important. I realize that trusting the Lord doesn't mean bad things never happen. That's not what I'm trying to teach you tonight. If he just trusted the Lord, none of this would have happened. That's not true because Judah's next king, his son, Hezekiah, will experience being besieged as well. And he was a very godly man who trusted the Lord. But I will say this, there can be never any hope of rescue when you're trusting in other gods because they don't exist. They can't help. There, there can never be any hope of rescue if you're going to say, well, I worship the Lord my way because then he's not the Lord. He's not really involved in what's going on. Look at James chapter one with me. James chapter one. James is a beautiful book written to struggling Christians who've been scattered all over the Roman Empire. And he tells them right off the bat, he says, listen, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Anybody find that to be easy? Like, that's not my first reaction to a trial. It's like... Oh, praise the Lord, I'm in a trial. I'm going to count it all joy. The Bible says that, that we are, we're to look at it and go, listen, there, 
There's, no, no, there's nothing about this that isn't joy right now. Now, that doesn't mean that it may not be sad. Sad is different than, sad is the opposite of happy. Sad is not the opposite of joy. Because happy comes from the word happenstance, which has to do with circumstances. Joy is independent of circumstances. So we count it not all happiness. We can still experience sadness, but have joy, right? So we count it all joy when you fall into all these kinds of trials. And he says, because, hey, God's doing a work, not just in you, but in others around you. There's, there are reasons for what's going on, and you need to let that trial have its work in you. But the challenge is, is to say, okay, all right, I'm going to have a good attitude through the trial. I'm going to, you know, face it with the right mindset, count it all joy. Now what though? I'm in the trial. Like, what do I do in the trial? Do I just sit here and go, count it all joy, count all joy, hope it's over soon. No, he says in verse five, if you don't know what to do, if any of you lack wisdom, what does it say? Let him ask of God that gives to all men, King James says liberally, but it means generously, kindly, and he doesn't reproach you. You know, when you come to him, you go, God, I don't know what to do. He's like, really? You don't know what to do? You've been a Christian for six years. Come on, man. That's not the Lord's response. He doesn't reproach us for asking him for wisdom or for help. You're in the trial and you go, Lord, I'm counting all joy, but I don't know what to do. Like, what's the next step? Where do I go from here? He says, ask me. Ask me, I'm, I'm generous with wisdom. I want to show you where to go, like what to do in the midst of the trial. I want to show you where to go through the trial. I want, to, I want to explain that to you. Ask, it says, and it shall be given him. But then it says this, but let him ask in faith. Nothing wavering, literally means not doubting. Why? For he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. Now, What's the other time in scripture that we hear about people being tossed to and Christians being tossed to and fro? It's by bad doctrine, bad teaching, right? False teaching. So what is he saying here to let him ask in faith? He says, asking in faith. Well, let's keep reading. For let not that man, if he's going to be wavering, if he's doubting, let not that man think he shall receive anything of the Lord, but in the explanation, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Oh. See, the problem is, is that I'm to ask God for wisdom, but I can't be double-minded when I ask for wisdom. Too often we make the mistake of thinking asking in faith means believing really hard. I believe! You know? You know, and then it's a hard day, you're like, I'm going to believe more tomorrow. Or if it didn't go well, I didn't believe enough. No, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying believe harder, you know, harder, more. No. Asking in faith means you're going to trust what he says. You're not going to be double-minded about it. So here's how this works. I'm in a trial, don't know what to do. God, I need wisdom. All right, you're reading through the word and boom, he's like, this is how I want you to walk through this. And you're like, yeah, that ain't gonna work. Double-minded is unstable in all his ways. You know the first time we see that word unstable in the Bible? Genesis 49, I think, when Jacob is giving the blessing to his sons, and he passes over Reuben for the double blessing, the firstborn. He says, Reuben, you're my strength. You're my firstborn. But you're unstable as water. You're tossed to and fro like the waves. And why was it? He said, because you went up to your stepmother's bed. You slept with one of my wives. What is he saying? He's saying, Reuben, you knew that was wrong. You knew you're not supposed to do that, but somehow you convince yourself, if I don't go through with this, I'm going to be missing out in life. And the problem is, is very often we're in a trial and, and we're seeking God and the Lord's like, all right, this is how I want you to walk through this. We're like, Lord, if I walk through, that, if I walk through this trial like that, it's, I'm going to miss out. I'm going to miss out on that promotion or, or that, that, that relationship or whatever it might be. And, and we become double-minded. We don't trust the Lord. We're asking, but we're not really wanting to hear what the answer might be because if the answer doesn't line up with what we want, we're not going to trust it. 
Asking in faith means I'm gonna trust what God says, I'm gonna follow through, rather than wavering between my own ideas and God's word. And that's the way <laughs> that we find joy and peace through a trial, whether rescue comes or not. That's how we find joy and peace in the midst of the trial. You see, Ahaz's problem was there was this threat with the invasion. We're not here to defeat you as a nation. We're here to defeat you enough that we can capture you and get rid of you and put this other guy on the throne. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 6, this was the rumor. The rumor was, we're going to come, where is it? Isaiah 7, 6, let us go up against Judah and vex it and let us make a breach. We just need to get into the city, get to Ahaz. Let us make a breach there in force and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabiel. We've already got a guy. We've got a guy that we could put on the throne and he'll be, pro, 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 he'll be anti-Assyria. He'll join the alliance. So we're not here to wipe you out. And, and so Ahaz is thinking to himself, he's like, I don't even know if I can trust my own people. I mean, they, they, can, they can just turn me over and the war would be over and everything's fine. Nobody has to die. So he's in a trial. But in his mind, he can't see any way that God would take care of him. That God would take care of him. That God's way would work. Second Chronicles 28 verse 6 states that Judah lost 120,000 soldiers in just one day of battle. And Assyria and Syria, I'm mean, sorry, Israel and Syria, they took a ton of civilian captives. They lay siege to the city of Jerusalem, but Ahaz holds out. They can't break into the city. And because of that looming threat of Assyria, Israel and Syria don't just have time to sit there around Jerusalem. And so they're forced to pull out. Judah's wounded, they're bleeding, but Ahaz keeps his throne. But then the rumors start coming down. Isaiah 7 tells us, oh, they're just up in the hills. They're waiting to come back. And so Isaiah, I mean, Ahaz is just freaking out. Isaiah tells him, he says, calm down, be still. Even though you've done all these wicked things, the Lord wants to be for you. He says to him in Isaiah 7, 4, Take heed and be quiet. Fear not. Neither, for the fa neither be faint-hearted because of these two smoking firebrands. They might be burning really hot right now, but their smokes, their fire's about to go out. It's just smoke before the Lord. See, he knows what's gonna happen. He tells Ahaz, in X amount of years, Israel won't even be a nation. Rezin, in a few weeks, he's not even gonna be king anymore. I've already taken care of this. Just trust me. Well, during the siege, verse six tells us that Syria also captures the port city that brought Judah so much economic prosperity and that adds to Ahaz's trial. At that time, verse six says, Rezin, king of Syria, recovered Elath to Syria and drove the Jews from Elath. And the Syrians came to Elath and they dwelt there unto this day. From the time that the guy wrote this, they were still in control of that port city. This port city of Elath is way down by the Gulf of Agrabah. Um, it was originally controlled by the Edomites. It frequently switched hands between Judah and Edom. I don't see any way that Syria being so far in the north could control it for long, but they did for a while. The fact they did for a while shows us that how weak this invasion left Judah. This port was a huge source of income for Judah, so its loss would put a dent in Judah's economy as well as the dent they experienced militarily. And you would think at this point in time, with Isaiah's good word for him and these other gods not coming through for him, wouldn't it make sense to turn back to the Lord for help? Sadly, he doesn't. Verse 7. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Syria and out of the hand of the king of Israel, which rise up against me. Hmm. I am your servant and your son. I'll be a loyal vassal and I, 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 I pledge my love to you, the, the idea of being a son. 
Interesting, if you turn to Psalm 116, these are words that are spoken by Israel's people in song to the Lord. And as Psalm 16, 116, verses 16 through 19, the songwriter says, and Israel would sing this song, O Lord, truly, I am thy servant. I am thy servant and the son of your handmaid. You have loosed my bonds. You're the one who set me free. And so I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. I will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of thee, O Jerusalem. Praise ye the Lord. These were words that were sung by the people of, of Judah. And now he's uttering these words of loyalty and love and devotion to a man, the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser. Malachi chapter one, verse six, the Lord says this to his people. He said, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts unto you who have despised my name, O priests. Ahab gives honor and reverence to a man instead of the Lord. He does the exact opposite of what, what Isaiah told him to do. Calm down. Settle down for a second. Listen to what I have to say. You don't have anything to be afraid of. The Lord's got this. And he says, I don't trust him. I don't trust him. I got to take care of this myself. And when I do the opposite of what God's word instructs me, I might succeed in what I set out to do, but I'm never going to find my feet on solid ground. He told, Isaiah told him, he said, if you don't do this, you will not be established. If you do not trust the Lord, you will not be established. And you and I, if we, will do, the, if we do the opposite of what God's word instructs us, even if we succeed in what we set out to do, we will not be established. That word established, it means to be made firm, sure, lasting. You know, I, I talked this morning a little bit about the, the joy of being able to, as a believer to have your feet on something solid, solid ground, the peace that comes from that, the rest that comes from that, when everything around you is going crazy and you set your feet on the solid ground of God's love and his faithfulness towards you, his promises. That's the only thing that's lasting. Any success when I when I do what Ahaz did here is temporary. It can't last forever because I'm not forever. I don't see beyond what I can see. But God can, and God loves me with an everlasting love. And when he gives instructions to me, they're based on his superior knowledge and his loyal love to you and me. So I'd rather be established, <laughs> wouldn't you? I'd rather have my feet on solid ground. And that's... Sounds way better than Ahaz's way or my way. But Ahaz doesn't see that as a better way. And so he asks for help and then he sends a bribe. He plunders the temple that his forefathers had restored to bribe the king of Israel to help Assyria to help him. Verse eight, and Ahaz took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. And he sent it for a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria hearkened unto him, for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus, and he captured it. And he carried the people of it captive to Kir, and he slew Rezin, just like Isaiah said. This guy's not going to last but for a few weeks. He killed the king of Syria. The word there for a present, it's not just a gift. It means something that implies a relationship of favor. I do this for you, and you'll do something for me. But what's so sad about this is he didn't need to pay Assyria a dime because Assyria was already coming for Syria. Isaiah had already told Ahaz this would happen. But that's what sin does. It charges me for its services where God offers things for free. Well, Assyria's capture of Damascus and the execution of their king, it brought an end to the autonomy of the Syrian kingdom. Syria will be ruled by other nations or empires until it becomes independent again in 1946. This is the end of the kingdom of Syria until 1946. Well, with Syria crushed, Israel's alliance of rebellion falls apart. They have their own problems with Assyria that aren't mentioned here. 
And Judah is seemingly now in the clear. And so Ahaz travels up to Damascus to congratulate his savior. Look at verse 10. And King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. And while he's there, he sees an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah to the priest the fashion of the altar and the pattern of it according to all the workmanship thereof. He, he is so impressed with this altar he finds in Damascus, he sends a, an image of it, a picture of it, and also a model. I don't know if he was like walking through like a little gift shop and he got a souvenir. I don't know if he asked the pagan priests, you know, make me a model. I want to build one of these myself. But I mean, it, it had to have been visually impressive because Ahaz is, he wants one for himself and he wants it to be exactly like it is. Truth be told, I wish Ahaz had seen a different altar on this trip. One in the backyard of a former Syrian commander made with dirt from Israel. Remember Naaman the leper? He said, listen, Elisha, I don't, I don't want to go back and worship these pagan gods. The Lord's set me free. I want to follow him. Can I have some dirt? I want to go build an altar the way that you guys do it. Not ornate, not, you know, with, with all these tools to make it. Just some dirt from Israel. Elias says, go, man, be blessed. The Lord's, Lord's all for that. Take some dirt. Naaman, who rejected the pagan gods of his people, the beauty of their temples, in order to worship the Lord in the way God prescribed. So simple. Just walking humbly with his God. I don't know who this Uriah guy is that he sends the pattern to, but he seems to be a priest of the Lord. And sadly, he has no problem building this abomination of an altar for the king. Verse 11, and Uriah the priest built an altar according to all that the king Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it against King Ahaz came from Damascus. That's a weird way to phrase it, but it means he worked really hard to make it so that it was done by the time the king got home. And when the king got home, he was so happy with this new altar. Verse 12, when the king was come from Damascus, the king saw the altar and the king approached the altar and he offered thereon. He decides to make burn offerings, his meat offering. He poured out his drink offering. He sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings upon this pagan altar. He says, I was successful. And I want to thank the God of this altar. Second Chronicles 28, 23 tells us that he made these offerings to the gods of Damascus because, well, they almost whooped us. It was only the Assyrians that bailed us out. So the gods of the Syrians must be better than the Lord. And so he decides to replace God's altar in the temple with this one, verse 14. And he brought also the brazen altar, which was before the Lord from the forefront of the house, from between the altar and the house of the Lord, and he put it on the north side of the altar. So he takes the, you know, the way that the temple worked is he had, you know, you got the, the temple structure, and it goes from side to side, not like this. And you have the, the tabernacle, you have the, 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 the actual inside building here, and then just outside of it, you would have, you'd have the, the, the brass laver, which is the big pool they'd use to wash up after the sacrifices. And then in the front, the big thing that would dominate would be the brass altar of sacrifice. That's where all the offerings of Israel were made. He comes in, he bumps this thing up north, puts it up here where no one's going to use it, and he puts the big, huge abomination where the brass altar is supposed to be. King Ahaz commanded, verse 15, the priest saying, Uriah the priest saying, upon the great altar, literally it reads, upon this altar, the great one, that one is... God's altar, the Lord's altar, no. Upon this great altar, that one, burn the morning burn, uh, morning burnt offering and the evening meat, meat offering and the king's burnt sacrifice and his grain offering with the burnt offering of the people and all their meat offering and their drink offerings and sprinkle upon it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice and the brass altar shall be for me to inquire by. Thus did Uriah the priest According to all that King Ahaz commanded, he should have resisted. The brass altar that Solomon made for the temple would be over 300 years old at this time. It wouldn't be probably shiny anymore. This was the new shiny thing. 
This is the great altar that will turn the tide for our nation. And so Ahaz orders that everyone must bring their offerings to this altar now. And he alone will be allowed to inquire of the Lord since the Lord wasn't very much of a help to them. What a sad conclusion to this situation. But sadly, this is often the case when we reject God's word. This is usually how this works. We don't do what God says. We don't trust him. Things go bad. Then we blame God for not helping us. Don't do that. I've heard it so many over. I've been a pastor for 27 years. I've heard those exact words from frustrated and bitter churchgoers. God doesn't love me. Why doesn't God keep his promises to me? Why does God fail me all the time? But in every instance, when we start sitting down, okay, okay, what's your walk with the Lord like? There's disobedience all over the place. And, and at some point, I have to ask them and say, how is this God's fault? It isn't God's fault. Well, Ahaz doesn't stop with his desecration of God's temple with the altar swap. Verse 17 that, uh, says, and King Ahaz cut off the borders of the bases um, the bases here refer to the water carts. The, the, so much activity was going on in the temple that the big, huge tub where they would wash up it was, wasn't enough. So we had Solomon had these ten uh, wash carts constructed, um, and they were covered with brass work in the shape of lions, oxen, and cherubim to give the image of the angels around the throne of God. These borders around the the water carts were quite beautiful, and because of the metal they were made with, they were worth a lot. Well, he takes all the beautiful parts off, leaving just plain water carts. Then it says he took down the sea. The sea is the big bathtub where they would wash up. He takes down the big tub from off the brass oxen that were under it, and he put it just on the ground, the pavement of stones. The, the big tub was, was supported by these three oxen going in every direction, so 12 total. Again, very ornate, very beautiful. He takes it off there and just makes it a plain that right there on the ground verse 18 and the covert of for the sabbath that they had built in the house uh, covert means a covered structure at, at some point a covered hall was constructed on the temple mount for the king to use on the high holy days took that down and he also took down the king's entry from outside the temple there was a the king had a special way to ascend up to the, from the palace to the temple. In fact, the Queen of Sheba remarked in 2 Chronicles 9.4 how beautiful the path was. Takes that off too. Why? Why would he do this? Why would he turn he from the house of the Lord? The, the, the word there, uh, it means he covers it all up. The turn means to surround. He covers it all up so that it can't be seen anymore. Why? tells us for the king of Assyria literally in the Hebrew it means to put it out of the visibility of the king of Assyria you see here's the truth his trip to Damascus to meet his new friend didn't go as well as he thought it would in 2nd Chronicles chapter 28 verse 21 it says this For Ahaz took away a portion of the house of the Lord and out of the house of the king and of the princes and gave it unto the king of Assyria, but the king of Assyria did not help him. He went up and he's like, I brought all this stuff for you and you did this. And the king of Assyria was like, I'll take it, but I was coming anyway. So he comes back, has this big, huge offering, sacrifices, celebration, yeah! But in reality, he's got to hide all the nice stuff because he thinks the king of Assyria is coming for him next. His savior didn't do any of this to help Judah out or him out. He had planned to do it all along and he simply took Ahaz's bribe to fatten his own purse. And that's the problem with human saviors. They might give you a temporary fix to an immediate problem but they don't leave you better off in a lasting way. We must, must be oh so careful that we do not place our hopes and our dreams in a man. Not unless that man is the God man, Jesus, amen? 
He alone establishes us. He alone brings a permanent fix to our problems. That's why Jesus taught us to pray a certain way. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. There's nobody like you. You're holy, you're distinct, you're separate. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, anybody who does anything here, it's gonna be temporary. But Lord, if you bring your kingdom, that's the fix we need. You give us this day our daily bread. You be my provider. You be my savior. I don't want to look to any man for that. I'm looking to you. I'm trusting in you. You're where my hopes and my dreams are. All of them. Does that prayer that Jesus taught us to pray describe your mindset toward life, toward your hopes and dreams? Or for, are you looking for a human being to do that? Are you looking for a spouse to be the one that gives you that, I, I have these needs? Are you looking for, for a business to be the thing that does that for you? Or a politician or a, these days a podcaster, you know? Where are you finding your fulfillment? The only lasting establishing answer is Jesus. Well, what a sad state of affairs Ahaz brought the nation to, and I wish I could say eventually repented, but the Bible says, no, he just died. Verse 19, now the rest of the acts of Ahaz, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And Ahaz slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. It's the end of the story. He never changed. He lived and he died. And I don't know about you, but I don't want my life to be one of hopping from one thing to the next thing to the next thing looking for hope. I'm gonna try this God, I'm gonna try this man, I'm gonna try this person, try this pursuit in life. I wanna rest in my savior. I want to really be established, don't you? Well, the good news is that Ahaz's son observes his father's behavior and wisely says, that didn't work. (laughs) And he becomes one of the godliest kings that Judah has had since David. He will trust the Lord and his reign does get established. So let's not be like Ahaz. Let's be like Hezekiah. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, we do recognize that the word says that when we have godly leaders that people rejoice but Lord you're the only true the one who has the ability to truly establish us and we can have that right now that we can be those who pray the prayer that you taught us to pray to look to you for our answers Lord whether for it's our daily needs whether it's for our sense of fulfillment in life whether for it's our, our sense of someone who will listen to us someone who understands someone who knows someone who loves someone who never fails. Lord, you're the only one that can set our feet on sure, lasting, solid ground. So Lord, we choose to trust you. We reject the way of Ahaz and we choose, Lord, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you, our God. In Jesus' name, amen.